Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Auguste Renoir rebelled against the standards of the official art world, like other impressionists, pushing the limits of painting and creating his distinct style. But Renoir, in particular, has become an all-too-easy target for museum-goers who find his late female figures contrived and his palette cloying. Marking the centennial of the artist's death in 1819, Mary Morton, curator and head of the Department of French Paintings at the National Gallery of Art, counters the anti-Remoir movement by reaffirming the artist's achievement and lasting significance within the history of Western art in her lecture on December 3, 2019. Good afternoon, everyone. Just noon. Um, I am Mary Morton. I am curator and head of the French Paintings Department here at the National Gallery. And uh, 100 years ago today was the uh, passing of Renoir, of Auguste Renoir. And I thought that this year, at some point this year, and today is the perfect time to do it, that we should really honor this great artist mostly because the National Gallery of Art has such a great collection of his work. And this is because of um, donors like Joseph Widener and, of course, Chester Dale. Both Paul and Elsa Mellon Bruce, Paul Mellon and Elsa Mellon Bruce, bought deep in Renoir. Um, and so I thought we would um, you know, spend a little bit of time mostly on the gallery's collection. So almost every slide that we're going to look at, and I will try and be very strict about notating which slides I'm showing you that aren't here, will be, um, uh, well, most of them will be visible in the gallery. Some of them are in storage because we don't quite have enough space, something that I hope we'll work on in the near future. Um, from the title, you'll see that I also want this session today to be a little bit of um, kind of art therapy. Um, a lot of people have trouble with Renoir, and we're going to talk about that. And I want to save some time at the end for discussion. We can really sort of share and try and together, you know, move over this hurdle of the Renoir problem. Um, and I don't want to spend a lot of time talking, as so many people do, about Renoir, we should uh, value him and celebrate him because of the impact he has on 20th century painting and French painting, so Picasso and Cezanne and Matisse and Bonnard. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time about uh, talking about Renoir as he stands on the shoulders of great old masters. Um, most often invoked are Rubens and Titian and Correggio. I really just want to spend time on the pictures that we have here and try and get at you know, what some of these problematic aspects are all about. Um, OK, let's start. Um, so in 2015, there was a protest. Some of you might have uh, remembered this. At the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which has a spectacular collection of works by Renoir. Um, and so you can read some of those signs. Um, this was a. Um, uh, 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 sort of an, an, uh, an activity that was um, mostly galvanized by a guy named Max Geller, um, who uh, I'm not sure what his day job is, but he travels around the country and foments this kind of revolutionary activity. It made its way to the Met. This is a bunch of um, activists in front of the steps of uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, in 2015, he made it here. This is my memento. 
my souvenir of this protest from 2015. Um, and I actually, uh, one of our uh, wonderful uh, people in the social media department um, uh, cued me to the fact that he was coming. And so we got in touch with him and I took him on. He has a um, uh, Instagram account <laughs> called Renoir Sucks at Painting. And he travels around the country, goes to museums, get, gets people to pose in front of paintings by Renoir and make ghastly uh, facial expressions. Um, so I took him on back then, I think it was 2015, and uh, I just kept posting beautiful details of some of the great treasures that we have here. And it lasted about a month or so. I think I picked up some followers through all of this. But um, you know, the, the, the question is how to um, counter some of this. So Renoir has been in the press. He gets a lot of press. Um, here are some headlines just of the last couple of years that, again, articulate aspects of the Renoir problem. Um, talking about you know, how, how prevalent the loathing of Renoir is. Um, why and what is it all about? Um, and then there was this, an art mystery. Can a fake billionaire have enough fake money to afford two fake Renoir paintings? This hit the press um, uh, right around 2016. This is the uh, Trump apartment in New York City. And there you see on the back, wall are hanging two paintings by Renoir, and people wondered what were these Renoirs doing in, in, in Trump's poem. Um, and of course, it turns out that they are uh, reproductions. But there was a lot of confusion about what uh, Trump was doing as, as such a patron of this great Impressionist master. Um, and apparently last night on Anderson Cooper, I missed it, um, but he has a piece called The Ridiculist. And I think he was, uh, again, sort of like delving into what um, what this was all about, this um, poor picture that lives at the Art Institute of Chicago getting bandied about, which also, crucially, is part of um, the great board game, the Parker Brothers board game masterpiece. Um, and you see that um, Art Institute of Chicago picture is, is one of the cards. Um, this was brought to my attention. Um, this is another way in which Renoir recently has not gotten the best press. Um, this was in uh, 2014. A woman went to a, a flea market, uh, I'm sorry, it was a garage sale in West Virginia, and picked up the painting on the right. And she thought, gosh, I think she spent, uh, I don't know, 50 bucks or something on it. And she took it to a local auction house, and they determined that indeed it was by uh, Auguste Renoir, and that it was worth you know, 10, 20, 100 times as much as she had paid. Um, and then, as the expert at the auction house kept researching it, he discovered it had been stolen in the 1950s from the Baltimore Museum of Art. Um, and the Simpsons did a whole piece about this stolen work of art. But to have Renoir, again, in front and center in the public eye, represented by this little landscape sketch, which is really, he probably did it in about 10 minutes. Um, but this is what people you know, associate with um, Renoir, alas. Um, Albert Barnes, who we will talk about again a little bit later today, the founder of the great Barnes Foundation in uh, Marion, Pennsylvania, that now lives in Philadelphia, was besotted with Renoir, absolutely convinced that he was one of the great modern, modernist masters of all time. This is a man who collected uh, Cezanne and Picasso and Manet and Monet. And um, uh, he bought, uh, I think the number is 178 paintings by Renoir and crammed them onto his walls in the Barnes Foundation. And I think it's hard for people to deal with all those pictures, particularly the way that he displays them. And I think very often people come away from the Barnes with a, 
um, uh, a, a, a less positive feeling for Renoir than, than when they entered. And then, of course, just the mass um, uh, marketing of this guy. This is a bicycle that they sell um, with a, a reproduction of Renoir on the, um, on the body of the bike. So he, you know, he, there's a lot, I mean, he has a lot to work against. Um, so let's just take a breather from all of that imagery. And again, what I'd like to do is walk through the gallery's collection and talk about what it is about Renoir that makes art historians continue to embrace him and celebrate him and that makes him still a very popular painter. Um, so I want to start with uh, this picture. This is one of our earliest paintings by Renoir. It may not even look like what you think of when you think of Renoir. This is a portrait from 1865. It was commissioned by the sitter, uh, Madame Sico. Um, so Renoir, uh, he was actually born in Limoges in 1841. So he's 20-something years old. Um, but I think class is something to keep in mind. He was born sixth out of seven children in Limoges. His father was a tailor, his mother was a seamstress. They moved when he was four years old to Paris. Um, and he uh, went to school and left actually at the age of about 12 or 13 to get a job. He had to make money. Um, but he loved painting and he loved imagery. And so he took up with a local artisan decorating porcelain, mostly with sort of Rococo decorations and figures. Um, he was dragged by a friend of his um, named uh, Laporte, uh, a buddy of his, to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts and into the studio of a guy named Glare, an academic painter uh, of uh, great distinction. Um, and he started training uh, at the Ecole in the studio, and it was there that he met Sisley, Basile, and Monet. And now you have the nut of uh, Impressionism. Um, like Monet, he was from, Monet was actually sort of middle class, lower middle class. Renoir, I think, of all the Impressionists was, was the only one who was truly working class. Um, they had to make money, and so they started to uh, try and get um, portrait commissions. Uh, and the way to do that is to get somebody to sit for you and then submit your portrait to the salon, get some attention as a portraitist, and then maybe you can make some more money over the next years. And Renoir was a, a, a prolific portraitist in the 1860s and 70s. And you see him here trying uh, his um, craft in this um, uh, commercial genre of society portraiture, but you can already see his great love and skill with color, that wonderful um, purple dress that he sets against a bright, vivid green cushion, the way that he organizes the composition in a very simple way so that you pay attention to that strong color cord, um, the wonderful texture of her lace, and her flesh tones. I mean, it really is a very beautiful work. Um, he also, of course, tried his hand at another commercial genre, which is still life painting, and specifically flower still life painting. Um, this is a beautiful large-scale still life that we have in the collection from around 1866. Flower still life, of course, is all about color and texture. It is an exercise for the artist um, in uh, their ability to deal with a range of colors in a convincing way and a range of textures in different flora gathered together, in this case in this terracotta vase. One of his first uh, very ambitious pictures was this great painting, um, Diana, the Huntress. This is from 1867. 
he paints a um, uh, uh, his, uh, his his girlfriend basically. Lise Trejo he was his favorite model and um, would become his his mistress. And he does a nude painting, large scale, almost life size painting of Lee's. Um, and of course, in doing this, he is plugging himself into the great grand tradition of female nude painting, which dates back hundreds of years. If you are an artist with ambition at one point or another, uh, prior to say 1900, you're gonna try your hand at the female nude. So he pa paints Lee's. Um, and he's doing this in his uh, studio that he shares with some of his buddies, and they tell him, you know, if you submit uh, a painting of Lee's that looks so real, I mean, this is really a, a real woman's body as opposed to an idealized, neoclassicized version, um, the jury's probably gonna, gonna reject it. It's just too real. It's not um, highfalutin enough. Um, and so he adds these embellishments, transforming uh, her into a goddess of Diana the Hunt. So now, oops, so sorry, I've given, it, given my, um, so he adds this fabulous um, uh, uh, um, bow and arrow, um, puts a rather strange little tuft of grass across her lap, and then this beautiful still life of a dead deer with an arrow through his head. All of this, of course, um, inspired by the then great avant-garde master, the real hero of advanced painting in the middle of the 1860s, who is Gustave Courbet. Um, and this is a picture that Courbet does. This is not in our collection. Um, this is a picture that Courbet does in 1853, and it was um, available to be seen. It made a big hit in that salon of 1853, but it was also um, sort of crucified for being, again, paintings of nude females the way they actually look, um, as opposed to all polished up and burnished and looking like a fifth century Greek marble sculpture. Um, so Courbet overturning the idealized nude and um, Renoir wanting to associate himself with that rebellious act. Um, this may be my favorite Renoir in the collection. This is a picture that he does in 1870, again of Lise Trejo, who was actually not the member of a harem in North Africa. Um, and Renoir would travel to North Africa and be profoundly inspired by traveling there, but he hasn't gone yet. So what he's done is rented the costume and um, tricked out a corner of his studio with these elements of, of oriental culture. Um, and uh, I just, it's just a, a stupendous execution of um, sort of the, the translation, the transcription of various textures from this beautiful diaphanous bodice where you can sort of see her breasts peeking through, um, the um, heavily brocaded jacket that she wears and the pants, the diaphanous transparent fabric that um, kind of writhes around her body, her beautiful skin, the way that her feet are sort of slightly arched, this incredible expression of sort of, um, I mean, I would just call it kind of uh, uh, post-coital relief or something. There's something very erotic about this painting, but it, it is not a nude. It's all about that fabric, that expression, um, the look on her face. Uh, it's just, it's just a, a stunning, a stunning picture. Um, and of course, it is very much in line with the other great hero of the avant-garde at the time, which is Eugène Delacroix. 
and Renoir is studying this great picture, the Femme d'Algère, which was um, exhibited at the Salon of 1834 and lives at the Louvre. And it's all about color and touch. Delacroix, without Delacroix, I'm not sure where the Impressionist would have begun because he was the artist that really released color from a strictly descriptive function to perform in a much more sort of expressive and emotional way. Um, the power of color, um, as well as touch. Delacroix also used a very um, uh, sort of autographic and loose um, handle on, on the brush where you could you know, still see his paint manipulation on the surface. All of this inspired the Impressionists. So he's really setting them up. Um, this great painting, uh, which is uh, 1872, so now we're just two years after the, um, uh, the Odalisque, um, and this is just a great Parisian cityscape. Um, the story goes that Renoir was sitting in a cafe. He actually determined that he would wanted to paint a picture of, of the Pont Neuf, which in fact is the oldest bridge in Paris. It is not the new bridge, but the oldest bridge. Um, and he's sitting in the mezzanine level cafe of a department store, um, which is now where Samaritan is located, right at the corner. Um, and he's sitting with his brother Edmond, who's a journalist, and he's made a deal with the cafe owner that he's going to sit up there and paint for a day or two um, and try and capture the bustle, the traffic, the liveliness, the excitement of this sort of the heart of Paris. Um, now, both, both Edmond and Auguste had, again, they'd grown up in Paris, and in fact, they had lived just a few blocks from this location. And as boys, they had played on the Seine. So this is really sort of Renoir's Cartier. Um, he uh, occasionally would ask his brother Edmond to run down and stop one of these beautiful sort of classic Parisians walking by and engage them in conversation so that he could continue to record what they were wearing and how they looked. So you actually see pictures of Edmond uh, this is Edmond here. He's wearing a, a straw boater and a particular jacket. It's hard to tell from this reproduction, but he appears two or three more times. Uh, this might be him. I can't quite tell. When you go up and see this picture in the galleries, you'll be able to pick him out. Um, but again, it's all about, um, I also love the, the feel of, of, of kind of a breeze. It's a sunny day. Now keep in mind, this is 1872, one year after the cataclysmic historic event of not only the Franco-Prussian War, which involved a siege of Paris. Paris was closed off to the rest of the world for several months by the Prussians. And then this awful uh, civil war called the Commune, which was waged in the streets of Paris. There was extraordinary destruction across the city. The Hotel de Ville was uh, burnt. The, um, the Chateau de Tuileries was burnt down. There was a lot of vandalism, and it was obviously wildly divisive. 25, 30,000 communards shot in punishment. So it was a really tough time, and then all of a sudden, less than a year later, you've got a picture that is so optimistic and infused with sort of like, you know, Paris is the center of the modern world as this one. So in a way, I think this is Renoir trying to sort of bring Paris back and recover with that extraordinary um, color and light. Um, this is a painting, a great Impressionist painting that was recently cleaned just about five years ago. Anne Herningswald took off a yellow varnish, and it just is scintillant. Um, and of course, makes you think of the signature painting by Monet of a few years later, 1874, that he would exhibit at the first Impressionist exhibition, um, and one of the pictures that would give Impressionism is its name. This is the um, uh, Boulevard Haussmann, 
uh, that Monet does. This is actually the version of the Nelson Atkins. But again, all about the city, Hausmani and architecture, um, those trees that had been planted maybe a, a decade earlier during this great urban renewal project known as Hausmanization that um, uh, dominated Parisian life in the 1850s, 60s, and into the 70s. Traffic, speed, and the attempt on the part of the Impressionists, certainly Monet and Renoir at this time, to make that painting function all at once. Impression. It's not, you're not sort of reading details and putting it all together. You're having an impact by a very vivid, fresh image um, sort of simultaneously. This is the aesthetic that they are after. Now, the nut, this nut of Impressionism um, is, of course, influenced by the great master, Edouard Manet, who never does exhibit with the Impressionists, but uh, encouraged them all the way. Um, and there's a wonderful story. This is a painting by Renoir of Monet's wife and uh, Monet's son, his first child, and their um, garden out in Argentoy. And the story goes that Manet um, is hanging out with Monet in 1874 in Argentoy in the August. Comes over, they're painting together in the garden. This is Manet's painting of the very same uh, composition, um, Camille, Jean, and then there's Monet doing some gardening. Uh, to the right, um, right behind the watering can. And uh, Renoir comes along and he sets up his easel and decides to do the same subject. And you can see how different it is. He really focuses in ju just on the mother and child. Um, and uh, I, uh, most spectaculars, we, just, we actually just finished cleaning this picture in the studio and I can't wait to get it back up into the galleries. But this marvelous rooster in particular and that very loose, lush, sort of oily brush that Renoir uses. Um, Renoir shows up, he starts painting, and Manet's painting his picture, Monet's just hanging out with his wife, and um, the story goes that Manet crosses over to Monet and says, oh God, that poor friend of yours, he's an awful painter, I hope he finds something else to do. Um, it's hard to, to tell whether that's a true story or not. Um, Manet was a great supporter of, of Renoir's. Um, but in this moment, I think you can see the impact of Manet's touch on a little picture like this. This is a painting we don't show very often. It actually needs to be cleaned. It's in storage. And it's a beautiful little landscape sketch. So this is Renoir participating in the great practice of plein air painting, when artists would um, set up little easels. And in fact, the conservators have found little, little pin, pinholes all the way around the edge of this canvas, where he had pinned it to a board, taken it out, outside. Again, he probably painted this in an hour. Um, Interesting how composed it is. Um, he's not just um, turning to left and right and recording what he sees. You've got the tree to the right, these trees to the left, the path. This is a very conventional uh, landscape composition, organizing the center, a horizon line, and sky. So once he's got that locked in, he can loosen up and just try and get a sense for the breeze, the humidity, with that uh, lovely touch. Um, again, he loved to use a very um, sort of oily, oil-laden brush. Um, I have to say that this projection, I was in here earlier this morning and sitting in the back to see how these things projected. This is such a beautiful little picture. It does not reproduce and it does not project. It just looks sort of mushy. Um, this is the importance of Renoir when you're trying to get a handle on him of really spending time with actual canvases. They just don't reproduce. Um, this, I think, is the best of our Renoir landscapes. Um, now, don't forget, Renoir is not really known as a landscapist, 
but he did try his hand at this genre that was going to become the center of Impressionism in the hands of Monet, Pizarro, and Sisley. Um, this is a picture from 1879. I believe it's currently hanging in the uh, boardroom, but we'll bring it down and put it in the galleries when we get more space. And um, this is a, a picture that Renoir paints when he's visiting with one of his patrons, a guy named Paul Berard, near their family chateau at Wargamont, which is up in Normandy. And he spent several summers with the Barrow family. Um, it used to be until, oh gosh, just six or seven years ago, called um, the, uh, the, the Vintagers, or the, the, uh, the, the, like the Vendemia, the Harvest of Grapes. And then an exhibition, um, a very brave art historian named Colin Bailey decided to do an exhibition on Renoir as a landscapist. And he got together all the best landscapes he could find and determined that, in fact, this group of people, laborers, walking up the path to deposit whatever it is on their backs at this little thatched hut were carrying mussels, that they are mussel harvesters and, and um, filling up these great baskets on their backs with mussels. Um, it is such a picturesque scene. Again, you get a sense of atmosphere, of humidity and breeze. Um, the color, this sort of lemon purple color chord that he's after with, with blues. Um, I also just love the way that the composition is organized into something very coherent um, with the, um, you know, this, tree, this uh, line of trees coming in, these huts sort of anchoring you in an otherwise um, very um, sort of uh, just uh, overwhelming sense of, of, of outdoor color in the sunshine. Renoir was, above all, however, a figure painter. Um, he was one of the uh, great figure painters of the movement of Impressionism. And this is one of the first uh, paintings that he submits to the uh, Impressionist exhibitions. It was exhibited at the first Impressionist exhibition in 1874. Um, it is a large picture. I'm sure you all know this painting. It's a little bit smaller than the projection, maybe 30%. And it's of a ballet dancer, which is um, obviously a very popular subject for a culture in Paris, which is obsessed with the Paris opera and the ballet and nighttime entertainment. Um, and here you have this. We're not exactly sure who the um, uh, model is. Several uh, names have been um, uh, advanced. But uh, she's um, standing in the classic fifth position um, and dressed not as she would have dressed for ballet practice, but very much dressed as she would have for a performance. It's a beautiful tulle tutu and satin slippers. And she's wearing a black choker around her neck and a bejeweled uh, bracelet. Um, and this sort of gauzy haze of color, the blues and yellow greens and grays all against the pink flesh tones of her face, she's almost like an apparition, the way that she hovers in that space that he's created. She kind of moves in and out of focus. All of this is very intentional on Renoir's part. He's using very thin paint, uh, wiping away extra paint with his towel, with his um, sponge, um, and then using these sharp details to maintain some kind of anchor in visual reality. It's just an extraordinary experience to stand in front of this painting. Um, Renoir also was a great painter of Parisienne, you know, this, this type of Parisian woman who was fashionable, beautiful, um, uh, a great conversationalist. And these are two of our portraits of Parisiennes from the 1870s, um, actresses. 
Um, and again, um, it's nice to have this juxtaposition, and I'll do it one more time, where he's using a very different touch for this woman, Madame Henriot, uh, to his, um, just a, a year later, around the same time, to his evocation of Marie Muir. Um, the shift from a sort of feathery stroke to, to a, a painting that's much more about small dabs of stronger color to create a more um, sort of incisive sense of, of her sitting. She looks like she's leaning against a, a bureau. But then this control of color, um, this wonderful mauve um, ribbon and then a shock of, of red in her pocket to keep it lively. Again, um, this shift, now this is a shift of a decade, and I do have these hanging on either side of a, a door jam. They're just, it's just wonderful to be able to look at them at the same time. The one on the left, one of the most popular paintings at the National Gallery, the great little girl with a, a watering can from 1876. And then almost a decade later, uh, the painting of, of the, um, the girl with the, um, the, the wheel. Um, and you know, again, you can see this shift, I mean, they're just, irresistible pictures and we put them in that gallery right off the sculpture court because when people come to the gallery so many of them do immediately walk up to the information desk and ask for the impressionism where is the impressionism and these pictures are, are, are right there they're the first pictures that they're going to hit when they're looking for impressionist paintings paintings of lovely little girls in beautiful dresses in the sunshine outdoors brightly colored I mean it's just about pleasure and joy and sort of life-affirming happiness. Um, and, uh, you know, I always say, um, you know, this is a lot of color that you're looking at. And for anyone that has tried their hand at oil painting, it is very difficult to control color of this strength and hue, a lot of it, a range of it. Um, and this is the great genius of Monet, certainly, but also Renoir and Pizarro and Sicily was a, a way to somehow use a lot of color but not have it become a crazy screaming mess. Um, and, you know, again, I think between these two pictures, I really am in love with, with her. It's this, again, this sort of soft focus, hard focus, this kind of um, kaleidoscopic effect when you're standing in front of a large-scale picture like this. Um, and well into high impressionism. This is a marvelous painting of boating. This is from 1879. Um, and I will confess, and one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to spend an hour with you all talking about Renoir is to recount and hopefully advance my own Renoir problem. Um, I have, uh, when I uh, first started the museum uh, world 20 years ago, I definitely had a Renoir problem and I set my head to, to really try and conquer it and figure out how to get over it, and uh, I'm gonna share some of that with you, but one of the problems that I had was palette and these particular color chords that Renoir uses. In this case, green and orange, and Renoir uses that a lot, green and orange, and it's just a chord that feels, uh, it's just a little hard to, it's, it's, there's a lot of orange in this painting. Um, I have grown to love this picture in part because of the motif. This is classic Parisian uh, outdoor, suburban leisure, um, boating. This is a scene that takes place in Chateau uh, along the Seine. Chateau had become the center for uh, recreational boating. You could get to Chateau very easily on a quick train from the Gare Saint-Lazare uh, in Paris. Um, in terms of who these people are that are arrayed, we're pretty sure that this is Aline Charigot, who was Renoir's model, mistress, and eventually wife. Um, this guy sitting here, what he's done is he's backed the boat in. His buddy is helping him stabilize it 
while she very daintily lifts up her skirts to go down and sit with him and embark on a pleasurable and definitely sort of romantic excursion on the surface of the Seine. Um, we think that this might have been modeled by Edmund, uh, Renoir's brother, and then it is possible that this indeed is Gustav Kaibot, who was the most avid boater of the day. Um, and of course, we've got one of the great boating images by Kaipot, courtesy of Paul Mellon, um, the skiffs. Um, all of this leading us up to this great picture. Now, this painting does not belong to the National Gallery of Art. Um, I think it is Renoir's greatest ma masterpiece. It's the best painting he ever painted. It's large scale, it's ambitious. He spent a lot of time on it. He organized it very carefully. And it was bought um, in the 20s by Duncan Phillips, who was attempting to put his small, brilliant museum across town on the world map. And so he spends a lot of money and, and brings this picture to Washington, DC. So it is right there. And every time I go to the Phillips to see one of their wonderful shows, I spend a little time with it. It is uh, an unmitigated masterpiece. It is Luncheon of the Boating Party. It takes place in the Maison Fournaise, which was owned by this guy, Alphonse, who was an avid rower. And he just sets up a cafe on the balcony overlooking all of the boating activity in Chateau. Uh, this is that woman that was standing on the bank, Aline Cherigo. Um, uh, um, Eliza Rathbone very uh, assiduously identified each one of these sitters or confirmed identities that had been advanced in an exhibition about two years ago at the Phillips. Um, but they're all sort of friends from town, um, actresses, journalists, critics, artists. Uh, it's thought that this fellow here is Gustav Kaibot. It's impossible to know for sure. Um, it's entirely possible st straddling that chair there. But it is, I call it a sort of phantasmagoria of pleasure and leisure. It's all about conversation, flirtation, discussion. Um, you can see this, these two guys are talking to this woman in a beautiful bonnet at the back, and she's covering up her ears because she's like, no, no, don't tell me that. I don't want to hear that. This, these kind of little vignettes. These guys are sort of talking at each other. She's sort of staring off, um, maybe in a sort of um, stoned bemusement. Uh, there's a lot of drinking going on. And it's just, if you were to draw lines through the gazes and the way that these people are interacting with each other in a heightened sort of social um, uh, energy, um, it would all be very coherent. Um, it's very, um, again, the composition uh, is much more complex than it, it gives you, um, uh, than, it, than it seems at first. Um, just a fantastic thing. Uh, and it's fun to do a juxtaposition. One day we'll get these together, um, maybe at the Phillips, because they don't like to let this picture out very often. But there's this painting, which is the other great large-scale monumental masterpiece of suburban leisure in Paris by Seurat. This is his great masterpiece, uh, Sunday Afternoon on the Island of the Grand Jatte, from just a couple of years later. And uh, Renoir was horrified by this painting. Um, so regulated and regular, almost like it was painted with a ruler or a compass. And then, of course, you know the system that Seurat used, these little scientifically, systematically applied points of color that were supposed to then co co coalesce in your optical nerve. Um, so same subject, uh, the various members of, the cl of different classes getting together, enjoying themselves, leisure, but it's just the antithesis of what Renoir stands for, the kind of pleasure painting that was Renmar's great genius. 
When we talk about Renoir, uh, we often talk about an element called the decorative, which is an aesthetic and also a very real function of painting. Um, having probably its high point in France in the 18th century, in all of these beautiful hotel particulières where you had women uh, running salons all over town and wanting their salons to look uh, magnificent and symmetrical and colorful and fashionable. Um, and these are two decorations painted by Renoir. We um, used to hang them, we'll hang them again. They used to hang with the Degas sculptures before the Boutet de Montvelles came from the Corcoran. They're wonderful and you can see the way that they um, could work together um, maybe on either side of a fireplace or as was the case in Durand-Ruel's salon uh, on either side of a door. These were commissioned by the great impressionist dealer Paul Durand-Ruel um, in around 1889 for his apartment on Rue de Rome. Um, and Renoir is using these, uh, this palette, a kind of Mediterranean palette of oranges and ochres and um, uh, blues. It's uh, in the decorative, in decorative painting generally, there's not much of a narrative, a story, any, no, no point to what is pictured. It's more about the pleasure, the visual pleasure of what is pic pictured, like um, you know, color and pattern of, of wallpaper or fresco painting. It's supposed to sit into an interior and create a delightful social space. Here is Renoir's portrait of Paul Durand-Ruel, um, who um, there was a marvelous project a couple of years ago at, uh, in Philadelphia and London and Paris that celebrated his impact on Impressionism, the movement. It was alternately titled Inventing Impressionism, Paul Durand-Ruel, and Discovering Impressionism, Paul Durand-Ruel. I mean, he really made the movement, but I would argue that he made a movement out of what the Impressionist painters were painting. So it's not, um, it's a very, I think, sort of, um, I could even, would even call it a censored uh, sort of um, movement that he made. Uh, his job, of course, was to sell pictures to collectors in Paris, across Europe, and then after 1886, very specifically to an American market. Um, and what do people want to buy at this time in the 80s and 90s to decorate their homes? Um, do they want didactic uh, subjects? Do they want tough pictures of urban grit in Paris? They want um, landscapes, beautiful sunny landscapes. They want uh, paintings of, of couples, of young couples flirting. Um, they want pictures of mothers and children, and they want uh, the female nude. I mean, this is the kind of thing that he's selling, that he's pushing, and he's thrilled because he has, as his two poster boys for inventing Impressionism, Claude Monet making these spectacularly colorful, gorgeous landscapes, and Renoir um, doing all the figura figurative work. So I'm showing you here a picture of the salon in his apartment at 35 Rue de Rome. This is taken sort of late 1890s, circa 1900. And you see right there, um, this was a, a beautiful apartment that Durand Ruel used as part of his sales campaign, frankly. I mean, he would um, open it up to the public and bring them in so they could see Impressionist painting installed in homes. He would entertain clients and potential clients in the dining room. Um, and I'm not going to show you a picture of the dining room, but in the dining room hung the luncheon of the boating party. Um, but here you see two paintings by Renoir. This is the muscle gatherers. Um, and this is this beautiful picture that lives at the Clark of a um, girl uh, asleep with a cat. Um, another picture uh, that features one of Renoir's great dancing paintings. This is Dance in the City. 
just here. Um, and what else can we make out? There's a dugah on the back wall, a couple of dugahs. Um, here are these two pictures. I just couldn't resist. These do not belong, and I did. Uh, um, uh, they are identified as belonging to the Orsay. They don't belong to us, but they're so fabulous, and I think they really get at some of the great pleasure painting in terms of motif that Renoir um, completes. This is these are from 1883. They're good sized. Again, just about a third smaller than the projection. Dance in the country and dance in the city, um, and just paintings of. Romantic couples, beautiful young couples partying, having fun together at night in Paris. Um, and then I couldn't resist, again, this is one of my favorite Renoirs, maybe second only to the luncheon of the boating party. This lives in Boston, the dance at Bougival. And I've pulled up a detail just to show you how I love this detail of this woman. She's caught up in the arms of this man as he swirls her around the... Um, the garden cafe, these people are drinking in the background, and he's so ardent, he's just bearing down on her sort of emotionally and psychologically, he's besotted with her, and she's enjoying all of this attention. It's just, you know, it's irresistible. Um, here's that painting of the girl asleep. Um, it's called Girl with a Cat from 1880. Um, such a beautiful picture, blues, reds, that feather in her hat, her flesh, um, and then all of it, she's um, cuddling in her lap and holding in her hand the paw of a fluffy cat. Um, and there is, you can, I could see it before. There's the girl. Uh, this is a picture. There's the girl. There's the luncheon of the boating party. This is a, um, a photograph of the Grafton Gallery in London in 1905 when Durarwell has his first chance to define Impressionism. And so he brings over all of his favorite pictures by his favorite artists, and he sets it up. And it's really sort of the first time he makes a major imprint. And I just wanted to show you this picture um, to, to, so that you can see how front and center the works of Renoir are. Um, one of his great clients, of course, is Albert Barnes. Um, and uh, I'm just showing you one of the walls that he has at the reconstruction of his home in Marion. It's fascinating. These are these things he called ensembles. He very carefully or orchestrated sort of visual rhymes and symmetries using Dutch ironwork and paintings from various um, centuries. And what you see on this particularly Renoirish Renoir wall are the ways in which these gestures, limbs, and poses are formed on the wall into a kind of um, ensemble, basically. Uh, balanced, uh, symmetrical. Um, nudes work really well for this. Um, and again, I think it's a wall like this that may start to have sort of trouble for people with all these nudes. And Barnes loved the nudes, and in particular, the late nudes. Um, and this is a late-ish nude that we own. Uh, it's not uh, currently on view. Um, it, it belongs to Chester Dale. It's a Chester Dale collection picture, which is to say that it doesn't leave and participate in Renoir projects elsewhere. We recently cleaned this about two or three years ago, and it, was, it just came out so beautifully. That flesh, I mean, the way that Renoir paints this, one of the most difficult motifs in painting in terms of challenge, you know, I would say, you know, the surface of the sea or a crashing wave or an oyster or feathers, but flesh, human flesh is just really hard to convincingly portray. And then she has cast aside to sort of enhance the um, erotic charge of this picture, her clothing, including, most scandalously, her corset. 
I mean, to see this item of female underwear in a painting front and center is fairly audacious. Um, but this is where we start to have trouble. Um, are we having any trouble with a painting like this? Just nod your head if you're having a little bit of Renoir trouble right now with this nude. Um, this is not an art, uh, a painting of a woman who has a, 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 a high degree of um, interior, internal subjectivity. Um, the very idea of thinking women apparently made Renoir bristle. Um, and uh, he just felt that it was unnatural for women to think and be cerebral. Um, and he replied to a critic uh, at a couple, a couple of points, you know, my, my, my models don't think, they don't think that's not what I use them for, that's not what they're good at. Um, critics ate this stuff up at the time in the late 19th and early 20th century, extolling Renoir's natural woman. Um, Théodore Duré, who is really the first historian of Impressionism, wrote, I doubt that any painter ever interpreted woman in a more seductive manner. Renoir gives women gracefulness, lightness, and freedom. These painted women are bewitching and enchanting. They would be, be ideal mistresses, always sweet, gay, smiling, the true ideal woman. <laughs> so um, I'm going to take a little break from all that, but come back to that hot topic and, again, go a little uh, autobiographical uh, about me and my problem with Renoir. Um, I began in Houston at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. They had a couple of very nice Renoirs. I was having trouble with them. And so what I ended up achieving was crossing the Renoir bar by approaching him through the 18th century. Um, Renoir loved, and in fact, there was quite a Rococo revival, a revival of interest in 18th century French painting in the 1860s and 70s. And Renoir loved everything about the 18th century. Um, this is a picture that belongs to us. Again, it's Chester Dale. Boucher's um, Diana. Um, there was a very important uh, Boucher that was bought by the Louvre in, uh, in um, 1851, and it uh, caused quite a stir, stir, and Renoir fell in love with it. it was, it's a picture very similar to this one. Um, these are paintings, of course, Boucher, Fragonard, Watteau, they painted, they um, invented and, and developed this wonderful genre called the Fête Galante, which is just aristocratic, beautiful people enjoying each other's company in nature, in often idealized nature. Um, it's about uh, goddesses um, enjoying um, sort of titillating or erotic moments, such as this one where Diana, um, the Cupid is, um, well, she's actually trying to, to uh, remove uh, these little tools of, of war or the hunt from, um, from the little Cupid while she, um, while she bathes in the water. It's about the pleasure of flesh, of baby flesh, of female flesh, pink flesh tones that haven't been weathered by work or the outdoors. It's about the Rococo, Rococo painting is about color, um, kind of pastel color, tactile color, the erotics. Um, and um, Renoir was, was besotted by all of this. Um, and clearly interesting, interesting to think about the pictures, the old master paintings, quote unquote, that Chester Dale bought. Just a handful of non-impressionist and post-impressionist pictures that Chester and, Ma and Maud Dale bought. Um, this is one of them, and I think he was seeing it as a for kind of forerunner to some of his impressionist um, uh, artists. Um, this beautiful picture upstairs, The Sleep of Endymion, um, from 1753, lush color, um, these idealized bodies, beautiful Fragonard, what paint can do um, in terms of translating texture. 
Um, and then these fabulous, we now have a full wall of Fragonard's decorations, four gigantic panels that are quite transporting. And I think now we have back in the center of that gallery, the poof, the, the round um, couch. So you can walk into that gallery and your head will start to spin and you can pat, sort of lay down with your you know, slippers in the air and enjoy this inc these incredible landscapes. The swing on the left and blind man's bluff. These are the games that these aristocrats are playing down in the lower register. But what these really are, they're again, they're decorative panels. They're trying to create a beautiful coloristic space. The trees, the greens, these billowing trees, the clouds, um, they're just gorgeous. Um, and then I think probably most famously for the gallery, Fragonard's great young woman reading around whom we built a whole exhibition a couple of years ago. Um, this is a painting about yellow and purple and paint handling, um, paint man manipulation, the, this bravura brushwork of Fragonard where he is creating the, um, the wonderful uh, neck cuff uh, and then, for instance, down here, just in the, he's, he's painting quickly, at least that is the, the myth of how this picture is painted. And he doesn't really have time to draw a line to create an edge along this, um, this um, armrest. And so he just turns his brush around and scrapes into the paint. He does the same for the rough up here. He's just so comfortable with paint manipulation and paint handling. Um, it was also very, uh, it was hotly sought after in the 18th century. Fragonard was making a lot of money at this time. Um, also when this was sold on the market in the early 1960s, um, the um, great patron of the gallery, Elsa Mellon Bruce, bought this picture. It was the most uh, ever paid for, for an 18th century French painting uh, publicly. And she brought it back, it hung immediately at the gallery in like 1862, 63. Um, so keep this image in mind when you look at something which seems decidedly less ambitious, like this little painting, which we don't show. Uh, actually, I don't think we've shown it as long as I've been here. Just a beautiful little study of a head. This is just about what light looks like when it radiates off young auburn hair, um, uh, flesh, the, the white of her chemise, and all of that playing against her flesh tones and that fabulous uh, color composition of the wallpaper. I mean, this is just, it's a color study, and it's about texture. It's also very intimate um, and sort of eminently ownable in that way. And so you see, again, a picture like this, which is about a very sweet subject. This is Gabrielle. Um, the, um, she really, she was the nanny for Jean Renoir, um, uh, Auguste's son, who's playing there with these toys. And she would actually stay with the family for about 20 years. But it's a very sweet, sort of almost sentimental subject of maternal uh, love um, or caregiver love um, and the sweetness of a child playing. But it also, that color, that sort of salmon color of her shirt against the white of his shirt and then the um, effect of the, of the riotous wallpaper behind, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Um, or this again, another one of my favorites. This is Ren Renoir circling back to the Orientalism of the early 1870s with this painting of a Spanish dancer. Um, the exoticism, this fabulous costume that he recreates that inspires him to paint a picture like this, that, that orange headband on which he has placed a contemporary, non-exotic, non-Spanish um, black uh, hat. Um, uh, but it's a, it creates a, 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 a wonderful counterpoint for all of those hot, lurid colors. 
So I am okay with Renoir, I'll just confess. I've, I'm okay with it, I can handle it. Um, and then I was really excited to see last year the uh, Clark Art Institute and the Kimball Art Museum very courageously decided to do an exhibition on Renoir nudes. Um, just take this bull by the horns. This is the area, the genre in which he has the most difficulty in terms of reception and reputation. And so George Shackelford and Esther Bell decided that they were going to do this show in part because the Clark Art Institute has such an incredible collection of Renoirs, including nudes and including this picture. Um, and so I was interested to see what, how they would present it, uh, what the catalog would look like, and then, of course, what the press was. And some of those headlines that I showed you early on are in response to this exhibition that happened at the Clark and at the Kimball. Um, they very smartly titled, inst instead of titling the exhibition project Renoir Nudes, they titled, titled it, well, maybe it was Renoir Nudes, but then it said Body and Senses. Um, and uh, I think you know they had to immediately sort of name the issue of the problem of Renoir as a supposedly sexist painter, or even as a misogynist, as he is very sort of casually, cavalierly uh, called by critics, um, members of the public, uh, undergraduates, graduates. Um, and of course, the, the real problem are his images, his images of nude women. Now, this was not always the case, of course, as you may have intuited from Théodore Duret's quotation from the late 19th century. Um, for about 100 years, Renoir's nudes basically posed no problem. Uh, they were discussed in terms of uh, formal um, elements, color, uh, brushwork, um, as uh, sort of icons of beauty and purity and pure aesthetic reflection. The nudes were not important as subject matter. They were just a kind of excuse for Renoir to show his advancing into the world of, of painterly modernism of the 20th century. Um, certainly, Albert Barnes felt this way. You saw the way that he was using them to organize a beautiful, uh, coherent wall. Um, unlike the female nude in the oeuvre of Cezanne, if you can think of that, of Manet, Manet's Olympia, the Déjeuner sur l'Herbe, of Degas, think of all of those ballerinas and bathers and prostitutes, of Kaibot. Um, there was no ambiguity uh, in Renoir's nudes. I mean, if, if you're looking at one of his great e examples, no decentering or uncomfortable cropping. Um, they're just all breasts, hips, thighs, buttocks, blondes, brunettes, pulled right up into the picture plane. Um, they rarely return uh, your gaze as you're looking at them. Um, the erotics, of course, are uh, sort of are unavoidable, uh, and particularly the erotics of the studio. So you can imagine the number of sort of um, novels. This is just a still images from a film of 2013. This beautiful model with red hair in the sun sunlight. Um, and then around her are um, paintings by Renoir, reproductions of paintings by Renoir of these models. And then this picture of the painter, you know, setting her up with a hat. Um, in the mid-1980s, more and more professional art historians um, uh, were female. Um, and so you had the advent, also in line with broader um, social trends at the time, of feminist art history and the invocation into art history of gender politics. So you have feminists, these women, who are looking at all these nudes, and they're kind of like, okay, you know, yes, it's color and touch, but, you know, it's a, it is a female woman, um, and they're having a difficulty responding to, to these objects in the way that men had. 
Um, you also had social art history in the 1980s, um, calling images to account for their social and political context, um, as opposed to just allowing art to operate in a kind of rarefied art for art's sake world. So this idea, this Kantian aesthetic detachment that had uh, influenced art history for certainly most of the 20th century was called into question. Um, and particularly when um, scholars looked at Renoir, they could see that the man was obsessed with the female nude, and particularly um, towards the end, and they started to ask questions about the erotics and the power structures reflected by these objectified bodies. Um, the most famous uh, intervention into the field on these along these lines was Tamar Garb's 1985 article. She wrote an article called Renoir and the Natural Woman in the Oxford Art Journal. And she called out what she was seeing in these images. Let's just go back. Um, the, uh, the sort of submissiveness, the evident availability of these models, um, the fantasy of fecundity and sen sensual satisfaction for the male gaze, um, that these models and Renoir portraying them are offering up flesh for the viewer's pleasure, but it's, uh, it's, 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 um, it's gendered male. And in the 1980s, people started to use this concept of the male gaze quite frequently because it so impacted the way that we all think about paint making. It is a construct that comes out of film studies. A woman named Laura Mulvey, actually in the late 1970s, um, coined this concept of the male gaze as a construct of patriarchal culture. That directors and artists, when they make films, when they paint pictures, they are feeding unconscious desires of the male viewer. They're making all of these narratives for a very particular viewer. Um, and very often, when you're looking at these paintings and films, men are always cast as active, controlling subjects, um, those that actually look, and women are generally portrayed as passive objects. Um, and so, you know, all of this is sort of floating around over the last decades, and here come um, Shackelford and Bell right into the middle of it with, you know, the most volatile of Impressionist production in this area. Um, and the catalog is excellent. The show was beautiful, if you're okay with Renoir, as I already was. Um, but I am, was most sort of intrigued in the catalog by the defense of these Renoir nudes on the part of a woman named Martha Lucy, who is a professor at, um, uh, adjunct professor at Temple University, but most importantly for our subject, she is curator at the Barnes Foundation. She's been involved with the Barnes Foundation for a long time. She co-authored their systematic, their catalog on the 178 paintings that Barnes owns with John House. She spent more time with Renoir than just about any of us. She is, um, Youngish, she's uh, my age. So what do we call that? Youngish. <laughs> she is a fe she's a feminist art historian. So what was Martha gonna say in the catalog? And I avidly read uh, her reread her her essay, and she does offer this really interesting way out of the problem. She actually talks about it as a kind of door closing when you go that Renoir is a sexist misogynist route in looking at these nudes. So I thought I would try and share that with you. She wrote that despite their seeming evasion of anything having to do with social history, that Renoir had been obsessed with soft, touchable nudes, um, uh, was obsessed in his late work with soft nudes, touchable nudes, 
in their insistent engagement with the tactile sense, that rather than a reflection of contemporary misogynistic culture, they can also be interpreted as aggressive, uh, an aggressive visual refutation of something that was horrifying and really paralyzing Renoir at the time, which is the ad advanced um, uh, industrial technology. Um, one of the reasons Renoir loved the 18th century so much is that it was pre-industrial. He was an artisan. He came from an artisan's family. He loved the handmade. He was hor horrified by department stores, by machine-made furniture and goods, machine-made food. Um, and you can see that, obviously, in his painting as well, um, that you can look at um, all of his oeuvre as being uh, informed in part by his love. He pictures, he's, he's not only making paint that is tactilely in, inspiring to the, to the viewer, but he's picturing people touching soft things, as in this case, hair, cats, fabrics, their own skin. Um, and that in a way, the late nudes can be seen as, a, as mourning for this vanishing artisanal past. Um, Renoir had been obsessed with touch his entire life, um, and it was at the center of his artistic practice, this human, uh, rather than machinated, tactile experience, the touch of paint, the sensuality of the viscous material of paint, the way that you can manipulate it with different sized brushes and different textured brushes, but also things that inspire a tactile response. Um, what better than the nude? Uh, hundreds and hundreds of nudes that stimulate the urge to caress, foregrounding tactile desire as part of the gaze. So I'm showing you <clears throat> Renoir's two greatest achievements um, of, 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 of like grand monumental nude painting. One is actually from the mid 80s on the left from Philadelphia and the one on the right is from the Orsay, it's quite late 1918-19, really his last sort of summa work. Um, the late life nudes in these pictures, skin is everywhere, filling up foregrounds, pushing to the edges of, of the canvas, cramming itself awkwardly into corners, um, and the skin itself, the purplish and bluish tints burbling up of blood and veins and nerves, a living, breathing, perceptual organ, like ripe pieces of fruit bursting at the seams these bodies are. Lucy writes, quote, Renoir's late nudes can barely be contained. Overflowing with physicality, they spill outside their bodily contours and push against the limiting space of the canvas. Um, these are far from the corrected bodies, the linearly organized bodies of people like Ang or Cabanel and that more neoclassical school. Here the flesh is bursting through its envelope with no hint of bone structure, uncontrolled. And Lucy notes that it's not surprising then that some critics and visitors register disgust. Particularly today when these bodies are so far from contemporary beauty standards um, that Renoir's works touch on the cultural discomfort with the female body its lack of structure, its messy fluidity, shapeless matter, and its seeming refusal to submit to the corrective gaze of the male viewer or the male artist in this case. Um, I often invoke one of my favorite art critics, Peter Sheldahl uh, in The New Yorker, um, and uh, because he's a poet. And he thinks very carefully about every sentence that he uses to talk about the exhibi exhibition uh, or artist show that he's reviewing. 
And so I couldn't wait. I hoped that Sheldahl would cover this show, and he did. Um, and it's really a fun read if you want to get that back issue of The New Yorker. Uh, my favorite line from the Sheldahl review of this wonderful show at the Clark uh, was, quote, again and again, the carnal tapioca, the vacant gazes, the fatuous frolic. And it's just so poetic, carnal tapioca, vacant gazes. I just loved it. Um, uh, and so he's complaining, right? It's, it's, too, it's just, it's hard. It was hard for him to go through that show. It was just, he felt a little clotted and cloyed. Um, but ultimately, he can't, he can't resist. Uh, the prehensile touch with which Renoir molds female masses with color, he just ultimately can't resist. Now, Sheldahl, of course, is steeped in 20th century modernism. And you know, again, you're always thinking, Matisse thought he was the greatest painter of the nude. Picasso was all over him. Bonard, where would Bonard be without Renoir's nudes? So you're thinking about all of that. And so you keep trying and you keep pushing. Um, all of this uh, flesh, all of this fleshy work, again, also keep in mind that this practice is coming from a man who literally lived to paint. Uh, and he painted every day. Uh, the practice was clearly profoundly life-affirming for him. Um, and he painted almost all the way to the end. Here's a picture of him sitting in a chair. Um, but you've seen the images, I hope, of him painting, his hands crippled by, by arthritis. So someone has strapped brushes to his fists so that he can continue to paint. He's sitting in a wheelchair and painting and smoking and painting and smoking, um, barely able to hold the brush or the cigarette. Um, the presence of the female body still inspired him. The tactile inspiration was literally keeping him alive until he died at age 78, 100 years ago today. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.